Good morning, everybody. So, welcome back. So, just you may remember that we have been in a series in Luke, and then before Christmas, we did a little mini kind of series, kind of running up into the Christmas season. And marking Advent, and we are we will come back to Luke, but we're going to do that later in the year. We're going to kind of pick up the second half of Luke. But we thought at the start of January we would do something which was kind of like in keeping with that kind of new start, new season thing. Okay, so now I don't know if you do you do New Year's resolutions? Who who kind of does New Year's resolutions? Some of us do. So I have a little bit of a love hate relationship with New Year's resolutions. Okay, because. <coughs> There's, there's, there, there is a big part of me which really quite likes them. I'm, I'm kind of wired that way. I like the whole reset. I like the new goals. I like the kind of maybe I can do it better thing, right? I like, I like that. I'm quite motivated by those kind of, those kind of things. I, you know, so, you know, there are certain things. I mean, okay, yeah, I, I, I'm quite drawn to it. But at the same time, there are certain things about it which... I, I don't like very much because I know out of experience that ultimately whatever goal I set, I'm going to fail. Yeah. So I, sooner or later, I don't get up early enough or I fall behind on my daily readings. You know, I'm reading through the Bible in the year and I get to Lamentations and f- sure enough, suddenly I'm, I'm weeks behind. Or, you know, I promised myself that I wouldn't eat any more of that pudding and now I'm in for my third helping or whatever it is I know. That sooner or later, so I, I have this kind of slight love-hate relationship. And I also probably, one of the reasons is probably because I also have learned through experience that, that even if I can keep up with the resolution, it doesn't always engender the change that I'm hoping it's going to, right? And uh, so this is my little theory, and then we're going to get into the series. So my theory is most of us set New Year's resolutions because, yes, there are some surface things we want to change. So we would like to lose a bit of weight. We'd like to get a bit fitter. We'd like to read some more books, whatever it is. Okay. But often, ultimately, I think we set those kind of resolutions because actually, fundamentally, we'd like to change on the inside. We'd like to be happier, healthier, more contented. And that's why we're drawn towards what can I do to change stuff? And the aspiration, I think, is good. The desire to change and to grow is a really good thing. I think it's a very biblical thing. I think God puts it in us. And it's all over the Bible, this whole idea of transformation and change. But the problem is, often the desire leads us to, if you like, a methodology that doesn't really create the change we're most looking for. Right? Now, a few years ago, I read a book called Soul Keeping by a guy called John Ortberg. And in Soul Keeping, it's really, it's about, it's basically a book about the basic theory is that real change, biblically, always works inside out, not outside in. We live in a world which will say, if you change all the circumstances and the externals, that will deliver internal change. It will make you more contented on the inside. Biblically speaking, actually, the Bible focuses far more on actually something that needs to happen on the inside of us to generate that kind of change whether or not the externals change or not. So that's not to say there isn't value in getting a better job or getting fitter. or there's not, There are values in those things. It's not to kind of rubbish that. It's that ultimately those external things don't generate the kind of, doesn't change the person we are or the heart that we have or the sense of, if you like, in, in that kind of language, the kind of soul health that we carry. And so I'm going to quote you a little bit from Ortberg's book. 
And it's a little bit of a long quote, but hopefully it communicates something of what he says. And he, this book is really written out of his dialogue with a guy called Dallas Willard and what Dallas Willard taught him about all this stuff. And this is what Ortberg says. He was a pastor in a church at the time. And uh, just so you know, what he says about his church is not how I feel about our church. But there we go. That's not why I'm quoting him. This is what he says. In my early 50s, it should come up on the screen, I was given a sabbatical. Seven weeks with nothing to do. That's all right. The elders at our church invited me to take it. Actually, they insisted that I take it. I needed it because I was becoming increasingly frustrated and impatient and preoccupied. I felt as if I had too much to do, not enough time or ability to do it. I was obsessed with the external things that needed to be done around me. I was, un- I was operating on the unspoken assumption that my inner world would be filled with life, peace and joy once my external world was perfect. That's a great recipe for a healthy soul as long as you live in a perfect world. During my sabbatical, it was easy to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from my life as my friend and mentor, Dallas Willard, had so wisely counselled. I found myself thinking that I'm a better person when I'm on sabbatical than I am when I'm working for God at a church. And I knew that was plain wrong. And I began to form a new goal. I want to be as relaxed as I am on vacation while being as productive as I am at work. There was only one place to learn about that, so I drove to Box Canyon, where Willard lived, and had a whole day to spend with Dallas. I told him that I felt frustrated because the people at the church I served were not changing more. That's not a comment on our church. I asked him what I needed to do to help our church experience greater levels of spiritual growth. Long pause. You must arrange your days so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. Huh? No, I corrected him. I wasn't asking about me. I was asking about all the other people. I was wondering what I need to do to make the church do. I was thinking about a book everyone should read or a program everyone should go through or a prayer system we should all commit to. Yes, Brother John, he said, with great patience and care. I know you were thinking of those things, but that's not what they need most. The main thing you give your congregation, just like the main thing you will give to God, is the person you become. If your soul is unhealthy, you can't help anybody. You don't send a doctor with pneumonia to care for patients with immune disorders. You and nobody else are responsible for the well-being of your own soul. So we live in a world which screams to us, improve the external circumstances of your life. And if you do, you will find more inner life. That could be a better car, a better job, better housing, whatever. Get more. If you get more, you'll get happier and healthier. But Jesus ultimately teaches that life always flows inside out. So Proverbs 4, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Something flows from within us. Or put it another way, if you want to change your life, we need a heart change. We need something or someone to shape our souls. And Jesus' promise in the Gospels is he comes to do that very thing if we allow him to. By his spirit, he wants to come and shape us in our innermost being, and that we might experience life, he says in John 10, in all its fullness. There is life coming from the inside. So in these next four weeks, what we thought we'd do is we're going to pick four words that Jesus says. They're not the only words. There are lots of things Jesus says that we could have thought on. But four words, and we want to explore what those words mean and talk about how they can shape our souls or our hearts 
to experience more life, more of what he has, more of his life flowing from within us. And I want to speak on this word today, and it's the invite where Jesus gives for us to come to him. Wherever Jesus goes in the gospel, Jesus keeps inviting people to come. Okay, you just see it again and again and again. Sometimes he uses that phrase specifically or that word. Sometimes it's just implicit, but he keeps inviting people. So he says to the parents and to the disciples, let the children come to me. In John 7, he gets up on the last day of the festival, a famous festival where they celebrate life and the giving of water and what water signified in terms of spiritual life. And on that festival, Jesus stood up in a loud voice and says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. John Piper on that passage talks about it's like a fountain is put within you. (laughs) It's this really great moment. It's like a spring is suddenly put within your heart. John 6, Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. Matthew 11, and this is the first main verse we're going to look at today. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Everything starts with the invite to come. And Jesus makes this staggering promise that if you're used to church, you get a bit familiar with. But if you step back and look at it, it is a staggering promise. And he says, if you will come to me, if you will keep coming to me, you will find rest. You will find refreshment. You will find contentment. In effect, you will find everything your soul is insatiably longing for. Right? Which is why we have, C.S. Lewis says, the reason why your souls never stop longing for more is because you were made for far more. It points towards the fact there is a creator who can satisfy the insatiable desires of your soul. If you'll come to me, you'll find rest, refreshment, contentment, satisfaction. You will find life. That's what Jesus says. It's a staggering promise. It's not something we make up. It's not something we promote. It's literally Jesus says, you come to me, I will do that in your heart. It's a remarkable promise i don't know if you've ever been to a really posh event a really posh invite everybody anybody ever been to one of those very posh invites one or two of us okay i haven't but my grandparents uh, my grandparents were just wonderful people my granddad was a methodist minister very humble no one had ever heard of them but they got invited to buckingham palace once to a garden party yeah, Sarah's looking at me surprised. Yeah. Well, you never met my grandparents. Oh, you met my grandma, didn't you? Well, they got invited to Buckingham Palace to a garden party. And to go to Buckingham Palace for a garden party, there is obviously a time you go. There's a place you go to. There is definitely a dress code. There is security you've got to get through. You know, you don't just show up. Like, I mean, although it was a garden party, you don't just show up in your gardening clothes, okay? It's not that kind of garden party. It's not like the Queen's like, I need some help with my roses. Can you nip round and dig a few? That's not what she's asking for when she was alive, obviously. She can't ask very much in the garden party anymore. But, like, that was, you know, you don't just turn up in your gardening clothes, okay? There's a certain criteria upon which you get in, and if you don't meet the criteria, you don't get in, right? Pretty much every invite 
you ever have, either explicitly or implicitly, has certain criteria you have to match. Come along, but please bring a bottle. Come, but please come on time. Come, but please dress correctly. In other words, there are certain criteria you have to match in order to kind of meet the invite. Jesus, however, keeps extending an invite, and in one sense, there's no qualification. He just says, come. He doesn't qualify it. He doesn't say you've got to match a certain criteria. There's not a standard you'd have to live up to. It's literally just come. But he does say this, and this is the one way he does qualify it. And he keeps qualifying it like this. He keeps saying, come if you are in need. If you're weary, you can come. If you feel burdened, you can come. If you are thirsty, you can come. Implicitly, if you're hungry, if your soul hungers, you can come. He's not saying, if you're qualified, if you've lived a good life, if you've got it all together, you can come to me. In fact, it's actually the opposite. The only thing you bring, the only thing that qualifies you to be able to come, the only thing that gets you in is your deficiency. Your need, your thirst, your hunger, your lack. And here's the great irony, right? Because we live in a world where it's all about actually what you do have that opens the door. I have matched all the criteria. I'm allowed in. But actually to come to Jesus, it's all about your deficiency that gets you in. The very reason that you shouldn't be allowed to come is the very reason you are allowed, in other words. And that's why we have a big problem when it comes to our good works. The Bible talks about good works, Ephesians 2, that God has prepared good works for us. But if our good works becomes the means by which we think we qualify, then we're in big problems. Because they are the very things that become a stumbling block for us. That's why Paul at the start of Corinthians says, not many of you are wise, not many of you clever, not many of you coming from good stock and from a good lineage. That's why Matthew, you start to read the first bit of Matthew, it's a genealogy. And you think, that's such a boring bit of the Bible to read. Have I really got to read? But the genealogy, if you know it, is like the who's who of naughty people in the Bible. People who've got it wrong in all sorts of quite shocking ways. Why? Because Jesus is saying, I'm coming for people who are deficient, who are thirsty, who are hungry, who are broken, who should not be allowed in, because the only qualification is your need. So Jesus says, come, but if you're deficient, not because you think you've got it all together. And if you're aware of your deficiency. In other words, the invite is entirely based upon the inviter, not the one who is invited. There are no exclusions. It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. And then he says this. Every time he says it as well, whether it's in John or in Matthew, he says, now come, and he says, come to me. Now, ultimately, this, the invite is not an invite to church. It's not an invite to a moral life. It's not an invite to a set of assumptions or a set of beliefs. It's not a sign up to a moral code. It's not to identify fundamentally with a certain group of people. It's not a sign up or to a certain set of spiritual disciplines. That's not the invite. The invite is fundamentally, although those things all have their place, 
and all those things will be things that you will do if you come to Jesus. But the invite is foundationally and fundamentally, he says, to me, come to me, not to a moral code, not to some kind of religiousness, not to some adherence to some kind of conceptual beliefs, not to some truth statement. He says, Jesus says, come to me. The invite is to know, to experience, and to encounter Jesus. In fact, it's interesting, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees who knew the Bible and the, well, he knew the scriptures super well, better than I suspect any of us in this room. And he rebukes and he says this in John 5, you study the scriptures diligently. In other words, they know the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. In other words, there's a way of reading the Bible that means you don't come to Jesus at all. It's literally a way of trying to qualify yourself. We use sometimes spiritual disciplines, and I'm a big believer in spiritual disciplines, but if we get them the wrong way round, and we think that they are in some way a way of qualifying us, we miss the point. Jesus is saying, you read the scriptures diligently, but you haven't come to me. You haven't read them as a way of encountering me. You've read them as a way of qualifying yourself. It's like self-salvation. And if we get into self-salvation, we miss it all. It's external things to try and qualify us internally. Yet Jesus says, no, no, the only thing that qualifies you is you become aware of your need and you become aware I'm the answer. So come to me. Come to me. He keeps on saying it. Come to me, follow me, abide with me. Jesus is not saying, just saying, I have what you need. Jesus is saying, I am what you need. I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. I'm the life giver. John Piper puts it like this. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. Our souls were made for Jesus. And the ache in our heart is at the root of an ache for Jesus. This is how the soul lives on God. It lives on Jesus. So the invite is to come to him. So at the very moments in our life when we feel like we shouldn't come to him are the very moments you should. So I don't know if you remember, but Rima read from Psalm 51 in the worship. Psalm 51 is David's psalm of repentance after he's committed adultery. Okay, so it's a very poignant psalm. It's not just, God... I've messed up. This is like, I have shipwrecked my life. Everything that you'd put on me, every plan, every destiny, everything, I'm the leader of the country. Now I've utterly shipwrecked my life. And he comes before God. He goes, you know, create a pure heart in me. So, and often we we get it wrong. We kind of go, I've sinned a bit, or I've gone, I've messed up, or I haven't done very well, and I can't really come, I can't really come to Jesus. What we're saying is, I'm going to go off, I'm going to clean myself up, and then I'll come. Then I can sing the songs, then I can come to church, then, then I'll be good enough. It's like saying, I'm sick, but I'm going to make myself better first, and then I'll go see the doctor. Which is, is, is ridiculous, right? We would go to the doctor because we're sick. But spiritually, somehow with Jesus, we kind of go, no, I'll make myself well first, which we can't do, and then I'll, then I'll come to him. <clears throat> 
The very moments when we are most broken are the very moments we should come close. Jesus says, come to me. And then he says something very surprising. He says this, come to me and take my yoke upon you and I will give you rest. Now, often when we read those verses and those words, if you know those verses at all, we become so familiar. We go, come to me and I will give you rest. It does say that, but it doesn't actually say that. It says, come to me, take my yoke upon you and I will give you rest, which is actually a very bizarre statement. Because a yoke was like an agricultural implement for two oxen, yeah? You know what a yoke is? It's basically this very cumbersome, heavy thing that was put on an ox and then another ox, and they were put together to work together to plough or to pull whatever kind of agricultural implement. This is, so it, this is not a normal picture. It's not, it's, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd think of, like, Jesus could have picked a, like a better metaphor, right? You know, if you were one of the disciples there at that point, you'd be kind of going, Jesus, I think, I don't know, I don't know if, you know, I don't know if you know what a yoke is, because that's not, I know you're a carpenter, so maybe you haven't done the farming <laughs> thing so much, right? But that's not a great, maybe, I, mean, I think we could have found a better metaphor to describe the thing you're trying to say. I like what you're saying, but I don't, the pit, and Jesus is like, no, 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 this is a very intentional use of the word yoke. The yoke was a heavy wooden beam used by farmers to join a pair of oxen. It's cumbersome. It's something used for animals. It's not a symbol of rest and relaxation. In fact, in the Old Testament, sometimes it's quite a negative phrase. You know, it talks in Isaiah about God coming to break the yoke of slavery. That the yoke is seen as sometimes as a negative thing that God is going to come and break and change. So, but Jesus uses it very deliberately. And one of the reasons I think he uses it deliberately is because for the Jews, they often talked about being under the yoke of the Torah. The Torah was the law, was the scriptures they understood it. And they talked about being under the yoke of the Torah. In other words, they were under the law. They lived under the law. They were trying to adhere to the law, probably out of very good conscience. But it was like a yoke on them. They were obligated and committed. And Jesus actually speaks to the Pharisees and says that you put heavy burdens on the people. You tie them up with heavy burdens. He doesn't use the word yoke at that point, but it's the picture of them being burdened. And then Jesus comes along and says, take my yoke upon you because it is easy and my burden is light. What is he doing? Why is he saying this? Well, this is how I view it. This is my, my thoughts on it. I think there's two reasons. The first one is this. Jesus is alluding to the fact that he is coming to fulfill all the demands of the law. So if the Jews were thinking about being under the law, now Jesus comes, lives a perfect life, and fulfills the law. Fulfills all the demands of the law. And therefore liberates the people from the law. And if you read Galatians, and we've been through Galatians, you know that Paul goes, no, no, you were under the law, but now you're out. You're out of the law. You're liberated. Is the law good? Yes, the law is good. But the law is unable to produce the life you most need. So you've been liberated from the law. So Jesus is coming, saying, I'm going to come and fulfill the law. I'm going to, I'm going to liberate you from the law. But I'm not liberating you just to go off and do your own thing. Then he says, now come and be yoked to me. So I'm lifting off you the heavy yoke that you could never actually achieve on your own. And now you are invited to come and be yoked to me, to live with me, to walk with me, to partner with me. He's coming to fulfill the law 
and now to draw us into an entirely new type of relationship, to partner with him. And he's saying that when you partner with me, you'll find rest. Now, we think of rest as being something where we just like, it's like the absence of work, right? I just need to rest, which means I'm just not going to do anything. But actually, often when we don't do anything, if you do that for too long, it's not that restful. It's just very boring and not very, it's not very fulfilling. And Jesus goes, I'm drawing you into a life which may be very, very active, okay? But I'm going to draw you into a life that's full of fulfillment and contentment. Dale Brunner puts it like this. A yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Jesus doesn't come to give you a better feeling or to offer to medicate us through the trials of life or even simply to forgive you or me. It is far more radical. He comes to offer you an entirely and different way of living life with him, connected to him, being with him, walking with him. And this life that Jesus talks about begins with the invite to come. And when we understand that, when we get it, when we believe it, when you live it out, it changes everything. It means, when you get it, that it all begins with an invite. It means that all the working, all the effort, all the achieving, all the doing that we inevitably have to do when we go back to work in our daily life, when we go home this afternoon, all that stuff is no longer a way of desperately trying to arrive, trying to be someone, trying to achieve something, to qualify yourself. All of it is simply built on the deep, fulfilling, rich truth that I've already been invited. In some senses, I've already arrived. I don't have to prove something. It means that if you're a believer, yes, there is the call to go, but that call to go and live out your faith is built on first the call to come. And it's really important you get it the right way around. You're never called to go in such a way to qualify yourself. You're called to go out of the fact that you already know you've been called. You've already been invited. It means that you can live a life built on the confidence that you're already accepted. You're not trying to live a life to prove that you're accepted. It means that the offer of life is one where you know who you are. You're not trying to live life in such a way to prove who you are or become someone. Because you already know you are someone. Because he's already called you. You're already invited. All those things are the product of him calling you. It, remind, it means regardless of whether you live your life in a lifestyle where there is profile or whether maybe you live a life that is seemingly you think is very small, you might feel is quite insignificant. Actually, there is a possibility of a life of huge purpose and kingdom significance and value. It doesn't matter whether there's great worldly achievements or not because the kingdom doesn't work like that. It means right now, today, you and I can come to him. That's what it means. I don't always know how that works. I don't always know what he's doing. But I do know that he said, you can come to me. 
There is a moment when you come to him for the first time and then there are continual moments where we keep coming back to him, where we experience his presence, where we let the truth of his words permeate our hearts, where he helps us believe again that he's here, that I'm called, that I'm invited, that I'm loved, that I'm adopted, that he's interested in me, his eyes on me, he has plans for me, that I don't have to strive, that he's got it in his hands. I just have to co-labor. I just have to be yoked to him. And if I'm yoked to him, Jesus says, that is where life is going to come. So I'd love us just to stand and we're going to pray. And then I think maybe we'll use a song. And I want to encourage you to come to him. So let's stand together.